So, Michelle. Yes. Back in high school, mm. this is pre-ASIO, by the way. So, like about a million years ago. Yeah, about, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were still running our computers on Steam. Yeah. There was this guy a year above me. Yep. He was this really odd sort of quirky dude, right? Always hung out in the computer yeah. lab at school. Yeah. And our computer lab wasn't impressive at all. It was like really, like the computers, like I said, ran on time. I used to love me a computer lab. Yeah. Now, the thing is, this guy, he did this really interesting little thing because there was this big brouhaha at our high school about how one somebody had hacked into the school records mm-hmm. and changed their marks. Hmm. He'd given himself 101% in every one of his subjects. Why 101? Surely that would raise some flags. Yeah, it did. Right. Yeah. So this guy gets dragged down to the principal's office yeah. and he's getting absolutely cornholed by mm. the principal. All right. This guy's being torn apart. There's a guy from the Department of Education going, what the hell? You know, you're... And this guy's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And then my friend, the geek, walked in and went, hi, everyone. I just need to talk to you about this guy's marks. I changed them. Okay. Why would you do that? What? That was the question everyone asked. It's like, what? He's mate, what? What? Everyone's what? And he went, yeah, I changed them because your computer system is really, really weak. Oh, hacking. Yeah. So we hacked in. Now, the great thing about it was the principal and the guy from the Department of Education went, what? What, are you, what were you thinking about? We're going to kill you for this. Yeah. We're going to destroy you. Went, no, you're not. You're going to write me a reference to IBM. I want to work with them in their security department. Still there. Oh, my gosh. Right. This was an 18-year-old's application to work in security for computers. Risky. Risky stuff. Risky, risky move. Now, here's the thing. Yes. I'm going to bring in a guest today. Oh, you're bringing in a guest. I'm not bringing in a guest? No, I'm bringing him in. We're bringing in a guest. I'm okay, just saying thank I you. am. A we. Let's say a we. All right. We have a guest. Okay, let's introduce him. You're listening to I Spy, the curious teenager of Australian intelligence. Uh-oh. Um, I just control alt deleted um, NASA, sorry. Not ideal. Hello and welcome to I Spy. My name is Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan and we have a very important guest. We're going to talk about hacking, all thing computers. Now, this guest is actually a host of a really interesting podcast. It's a seven-part series called Motherload and I've started listening to it. I'm really enjoying it, particularly the bits about Commodore 64s because I had one. Um, but <laughs> And you say I'm old. <laughs> okay. I gave too much away. Do you want to introduce our guest? I do. Melbourne Journal, host of Motherload. Everyone, please Round of applause for Greg Muller. Greg, how are you? Hi. Hi, David. Hi, Michelle. <laughs> Sorry, you just listened to our ramblings, our pre-amble ramblings, and it doesn't get any better from here, so I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, just for all our listeners, Motherload is this absolutely beautifully curated and mixed. Yeah, it's and really good. engineered, just a beautiful podcast, nothing like this. This is just a free-for-all in a box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Greg, I just want to start off, how did you get involved in this podcast and why? Well, you know, not from any interesting computers, really. Really, I, I, perhaps like you, I knew some people in high school who who had a computer, and I didn't really know what they did. Uh, I remember one guy wanting to buy a modem and desperate for one, and I, I just kind of thought, why, you know? So it wasn't from any personal interest, <laughs> but but 20, 30 years later, well, we're talking modems, um, you know, from your Commodore sixty fours and your Sega computers, I know. And- where, where where it goes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but you know, I guess in the background and, and living in Melbourne, and um, you know, just being a journalist, you. you you're in touch with a little bit of IT every day. And 
I guess when I was, um, the company came to me and said, you know, would you be interested in looking into this podcast? And I read a few books and looked at it and thought, this is amazing. This, not only was it going on in my back door, which is, and I actually lived just a few suburbs away from a lot of these hackers. Like, oh my God, they're probably at the same blue light discos. Well, they probably weren't. Maybe. <laughs> oh, remember, remember a blue light disco? I loved a blue light disco. Yeah, I went to a few blue light discos, yeah, had yeah. a pass at a few. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Well, that, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've got all these, um, done a lot of investigation into the AFP phone taps of these guys to see what they're mm. up too. And, and there's a little bit of me that feels a bit bad about recreating what a 17 and 18 year old guy chats to on their mates at two in the morning. Yeah. If that was me, you know, it'd be who had fake ID and who got into the blue light and who patched who. Yeah. 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 And, and I wouldn't really want that talked about 20 or 30 years later. But, but what's fascinating about it is they weren't talking about who was patching no. at the blue light disco. They were talking about how they could actually crash the blue light disco database. That's right. right. <laughs> well, then I sort of felt a bit better about it because they were talking about how to break into NASA. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I go, well, we're on a different level here, aren't we? And it's just amazing, I think, what they did with the equipment that they had. Yeah. So the whole series is quite expertly kind of produced and put together and you've got some great interviews. Now, how long did the research take for something like this? Because the, the project is quite well thought out and researched. And I always am curious as to how long these things take to put together because it does sound like it's a lot of work when into it oh yeah it does um and especially something so historic and because we mm. move into julian assange territory in the later episodes you've got to be careful and trying to be as accurate as you possibly can there's mm. a lot of stories a lot of people's memories well a there's a lot of people that don't want to talk about it and you can yep. understand that there's a lot of people that want to talk about it but their memories may be exaggerated because yes. there's a lot of ego in this in this scene as well and then there's people that just can't remember a lot of stuff like the afp officers are going oh yeah I remember something about that i'll get back to you you know i actually yeah. spoke to a couple of um the lawyers who actually are now judges and they were trying to push their memories as well to get to remember some details. So, sorry, Michelle, to answer your question, I've been working on this for about seven months mm. and you know, a lot of that has been trying to find source documents because yeah. for those reasons you want to work on source documents. So we were looking through investigations by the California University of the Wankworm in 1990. By the way, that's that's got to be the best name for a worm. I know, right? I particularly like the fact that no one in America knew what it was and everyone in Australia is like going, whoops. And it kind of sums up perfectly people who spend a lot of time on their computers. Yeah. What Again, what did Wank... <laughs> it, it's... <laughs> I'm going to, excuse me, I'm just leaving the room. For yeah. <laughs> Get off Reddit, David. Um, uh, what did it stand for again? I'm trying to remember what Wank stands well, for. That's we, so we, we know spoke, what it means. We, yeah, we know what it means, but we spoke to the head of computer security at NASA and he just said, and I'll put on my best American accent, we just thought it stood for what it explained underneath, that worms, <laughs> against, worms against nuclear killers. That's right, yeah, worms against nuclear killers. <laughs> Oh, my God. The Americans, they can be so funny. I mean, they like a fanny pack too, so who knows? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, let's not talk about it. You know, I'm getting okay. slammed here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, of course, you had the oils worm, which, again, referred directly back to Midnight Oil, but they, again, America had no idea what this is all about. No, there was lot, There was all these little clues, you know, that it was that it was from Melbourne or from Australia and then yeah. finally from Melbourne. But it took a while for those clues. They first thought that it came from France. Because they traced it back to New York and then they traced it from New York to France. And I thought, oh, we've got it in France. So they called the French Secret Service and said, yeah, it's over to you. Yeah. And they said, oh, no, no, we've, we've got it coming from over here, which was Australia. We have no um, idea what wank is in, in where we are. It is called the Bronleur. 
Oof, um, also, I should warn you, he loves an accent. Yeah, so an accent yeah, you mentioned a country, <laughs> we are there right away. Come on. <laughs> now, when we when we think about hacking, I know from our perspective, you know, we delve into ASIO and security and all that kind of stuff. And hacking is one of those things that's become a lot more prevalent. You know, governments themselves are actually using hackers to their benefit. Because I know what you kind of mentioned in episode one is that Melbourne, Australia, was it a birthplace for hacking, would you say? Or was like quite prevalent, they were quite good at it. Well, that was surprising to me. Yeah, it mm. seemed to be an epicenter. So, the AFP guy yeah. who was investigating this for the first group called The Realm, mm. he was saying, What did he say? Top 10, top five, top three hackers in the world were in It's Melbourne. incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it kind of is amazing because we were so remote. And back then, I mean, you, you might remember it, that to make a phone call 50Ks outside your house was expensive. You know? Yeah. So you didn't didn't leave your suburb very much mm. in, in, in Melbourne and or in anywhere really in Australia. So to have access in this remote place to the whole world for yep. a really curious, you know, 17-year-old boy, and they were mostly boys, would have been extraordinary. It's it's one of the themes which goes through the first quite a few episodes really. This this were they criminals or were they just Curious pioneers. In yeah, I think, yeah, that was the word you used was pioneer. Yeah. And I, I also, I mean, uh, an indication of what was going on and how difficult it would have been to be a hacker in Australia at that point was that one of the first things they hacked into were the telephone systems so they could change phone numbers and phone lines yeah. so they weren't paying for it. And then I can't remember that one of the hacker's mothers got a $10,000 phone bill when the yes. police finally figured it out. Yes. So that's, I mean, incredible amount of like skill yes. that was born out of the, out of boredom. Probably more than anything, in curiosity, and and were they breaking the law? Because the AFP weren't onto it. The the Victorian police weren't onto it either. They were called up by the US Secret Service saying, "We've got some guys. I think they're from your hometown doing some hacking. Can you look into it?" So the hackers were head of the police at that stage. And then when we followed this AFP investigator who actually went to uni to do a computer course so he could chase them, so they were they were stepping up on each other continually. And I think that's really interesting because who was ahead of the game? Certainly wasn't the AFP. But, I mean, the interesting thing about that is, as you you say as well, a lot of these guys then went on to work for various technology firms and also for governments as security specialists. I mean, it's the classic stainless steel rat idea that, you know, you use a thief to catch a thief. Mm. And it's interesting, that career trajectory seems quite, you know, we all, we all hear about that. You hack now, then, you know, you hack into the government, then they give you a job. Mm. But what's interesting about the hackers in Melbourne, so there's lots of famous hackers, Eric Bloodaxe, Kevin Midnick in the States, and Morris, who did the Morris Worm. Yep. They went on to good careers. You see them on talk shows. They mm. write books about cybersecurity. But these Melbourne hackers just didn't. They all went to ground. Nothing since their court cases in public life. We oh. managed to get messages to one or two of them, but they're really quiet. Why do you suppose that is? Is it because, like, Australians – tend to not be in it for the bravado. They tend to – they kind of like get on with stuff and then they, they're done with it. It's hard to say and I just can't be definitive. So some of the theories we've got with, you know, you did this, it's probably the best you're going to do. It's like an elite athlete who breaks their leg. They're never going to get that fast time mm. again. And yeah. So they, they leave the scene, possibly. Bill Apro says that the type of personalities they were, once we caught them, they were going to shut down. Maybe. You know, maybe they haven't. We just don't know. But they certainly didn't cash in on their notoriety like like a lot of you know, hackers do of that time, of that era. Yep. You, you're right, though. A lot of people then go on to working in um, you know, penetration testers for corporations will, will pay them to try and crack into their system. And that, that's a viable employment career yeah. path now for these guys. But back then, I'm not sure. And I've often wondered whether they were, I think I might have said this in the podcast, I'm not sure whether they were 
proud or a bit scared, like, oh, my God, what did we do? You know, we've got the Secret Service looking at us. We were mm. just, it was three in the morning and I wanted to see how far I could get. Yeah, so, it's a little bit like they found a hole in a fence of a military installation, went, let's mm. just jump around on the tanks and the planes and have some fun. And yeah. then when they get caught, then suddenly there's this moment of hubris where they've yeah. gone, oh, my God, I've actually gone too far. But another a really interesting thing that's starting to develop was this, this idea of hacktivism. So you're hacking with a purpose, a yes. political purpose. Mm. And there's this thing called the hacker ethic, which is really strong. And as we follow through from the realm to another group, international subversives to Julian Assange's involvement, mm. this idea of a hacker ethic is really strong. It might not be in line with what the police say is legal, but this ethic is you go in, you don't damage anything, you share all your information. So it's like, I think someone explained the hacker ethic is going into a national park and having a look around, but you still, you got to pick the lock to get in at the yeah. first place. So, so there's, you know, there's a little bit of nefariousness if you like, but to, as to the level of criminality, I think that's, it's up for debate. So while you were doing this project, what really stuck in your mind? Was there a, a person or an instance or a story that you found just most interesting or something so unexpected? I think the big reveal for me is you had this um, convergence of technology, of curiosity, and then the politics of the time, which we do get into in the later episodes, the politics of the time, you've got to think about that too. We were in a point in our history where we were just starting to not trust our institutions. Yeah, yep. we'd, we'd learned in the Daniel Ellsberg leaks in 69, was it, that the governments can lie to us. And mm. I think that was, that was a you know, perhaps an important moment. Then um, we go through the Iraq war and the, and then we go, well, I think they are lying to us. Well, what are we going to do about it? So you mix a technology where an individual at night has the ability to stand up to a major US military institution. Like that levels the playing field and I don't think that's been done before. With a politics, like I said, that where people were not really trusting or believing our governments and the convergence of this, I think, was the most fascinating thing for me. So there's a group called the Cypherpunks, which we talk about, a big influence on Julian Assange and you can really see the Cypherpunk fingerprints all over WikiLeaks, when, especially right. when you're looking at it from 20 years later in, in retrospect. This is what I'm finding so interesting. Mm. They weren't left-wing. They weren't right-wing. There's left-leaning liberals. There's human rights workers. There's hardcore free marketeers, libertarians, and they're all mixed in this. What unites them is um, this idea that information should be free and information is almost like in the rules of thermodynamics, one person talks about it. Yeah, well, which is really the sort of like the underlying sort of theology of Assange and WikiLeaks. Mm. It's like it's information. If we get our hands on it, we're going to share it, which goes back to that hacker ethic, which is you share what you know. That's right. And that was very prevalent, as you talked about, in the early stages of the Melbourne hacking groups where they were, you know, we found a way in. Here's how you do it. They didn't go, we've got a way in. Let's keep it. It's our secret. They just shared it with every other hacker. And it was more that idea that you get to claim kudos because you're the one who figured it out. Yeah, you're right. There is a fair bit of ego in this as well. But this idea that you share everything, I find really interesting. And the, the, I mean, you've got the, the white hats and the black hats. So the mm. black hats are malicious hackers. They go in and it's ransomware and that sort of thing. Yeah. The white hackers go in and show vulnerabilities in your system and will tell you about them. Problem is a lot of companies don't want to hear about them because who wants that to be out there that, oh, my God, we've got a you know, breach in our credit card systems. Yeah. So they may not want to hear about it, but the hackers go, well, no, no, that's not an answer. You, we've got to share this. So even though they're doing perhaps, you'd argue, the right thing, they're still not often popular. There was a Microsoft Exchange hack, which is a really interesting case. So I think that uh, yeah, because that affected my workplace. That affected, and, and it's still affecting a lot of people. Yeah. In that, what the Chinese did, they regarded as a PRC Ministry of Intelligence mm. hack. Essentially, what they've done is they've used criminal elements. They've used your black hat hackers to make this breach, but then. 
everybody else has piled in on top of it. Like they've they found the breach. The Black Hats have then shared the breach and then you've got a lot of criminal elements moving through. So there's ransomware going in and it's just one, instead of hacking an organisation, they hack the software they're using. So it's like that, again, it's that exponential curve of access and freedom of information just getting out of control. And now every time I have, to, I want to open like my work emails, I've got to jump through a million hoops, get a text message, phone someone, <sighs> speak to someone in South Africa, and then finally I might be able to open an email. It's crazy yeah, now. That Nigerian prince, you've got to give him your bank details. <laughs> I, oh, that's- I have to go on a date with a Nigerian prince. Oh, it's like crazy. God, that guy is so high maintenance. He yeah. always wants a date. Yeah, but it's so, I mean, I mean, it's really, really interesting to me because we, we're we looking, was particularly with starting from Ep1, you're looking at kind of the birthplace of hacking here and now the, the sophistication of it all and what it means as well. I mean, when we look at what's happening with Ukraine and Russia, I mean, the Australians are helping out us giving cyber support because that's the way that we support now. Instead of boots on the ground, it's cyber support. Well, that's, uh, uh, that's asymmetric warfare as it yeah. stands and Australia actually seems to be very good at it. And I'm wondering if that is because we have this legacy from the 90s where we had these very strong hacking groups and how that has kind of fed into our security apparatus. The DG of Signals Directorate basically said last year that, yeah, we're not playing the defensive game anymore. A good, you know, a good defense is a good offense. So let's get offensive. So they're now stepping out it's basically their attitude is if you hit us we're going to hit you twice as hard so it's an interesting sort of sphere to be looking at now is how that's just developed over what is what 30 years Mm. 30 years yeah Yeah. i spoke to one person who had a nice a good way of putting it that the idea of a kinetic war you know throwing metal and explosives at each other is so old-fashioned like if you actually want to take a country out you can just take down it's it's you know, the only reason your water works when you turn on the tap yes. is because someone yep. hasn't hacked it. And the only reason that your phone works or your lights work is because no one's hacked it. Or the only reason your travel to work works because the traffic systems are all computerized is because no one's hacked it. And so when you start thinking about it in those terms, yeah, it changes a lot. You know, I just wanted to mention this. There was a really, I think, pivotal moment when we started to realize this in about 98, I think it was. So the US had a Senate hearing about cybersecurity. It was pretty mm. new. Mm. They invited a hacker group along to give them a presentation. So this hacker group called The Loft, and they're known as White Hats, fronted up in front of this US Senate committee. It's extraordinary. You can watch it on YouTube. It's it's just amazing. They look like they're from a 90s metal band. They've got lots of hair. And- <laughs> the never Motley le- crew. Never left their parents' basement. Isn't that what they, they like to say? Kind of. Yeah. They're the radical guys at the blue light disco. Yeah. They're the ones that all the girls go, <laughs> check them out. <laughs> and they're also they're also not appearing under their real names. They're appearing under their yes, hacker handles. Of course. Of course. Of course. And there's there's a few moments in it which just make you go, wow, but it's not like we weren't warned. So one of the senators asks one the, this panel of hackers, you know, I've been told that if what if a, a foreign country was to assemble a group of guys like you and um, how much damage could you do? And he just said, well, we could take down the internet. <laughs> yeah, I was really hoping what you were going to say. Yeah. <laughs> what I was hoping you were going to say was, you know, how much damage can they do? And then the whole room just goes, and all the lights go out, everything stops, the whole country stops, and then that's what we can do. Which Putin in 2008, when they went into Georgia, the first thing they did, telephones went out, media went out, electricity went out, water went out. Mm. They hacked it all. Mm. They just shut it all down. And as soon as you do that, your country is already on a back foot. So with Ukraine, what's going with the Ukraine at the moment is they are terrified that this is going to happen simply because – 
the Russians have got a really, really solid history in intelligence and security, particularly covert action and grey warfare. And the the internet, cyber warfare is just another arrow in their quiver. And they're really good at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite frightening. So and one of the senators actually said, thanks for coming here and telling us that the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> <laughs> because they, yeah. they did realise that um, they were vulnerable for, mm. for this. People hadn't really... Thought about it. It's interesting because, like I said, they're white hats. So the leader of this group, I think his hacker name was Mudge, went on to become the head of security at Twitter. You know, so they they did do that career path, David, that you were talking about. And yet we have so many bots. I do. Can I tell you? I, oh yeah. It's like God. Can we clean Twitter up? That'd be great. Anyway. I got to tell you, I do love. I just love the idea that on his office door, it's got you know, head of security, Mudge. That would look great. I'd be stuck with it. <laughs> Business card, Mudge. Now, of course, it's talking of another hacker with a name that starts with M, Mannix, Julian Assange. Your next episodes, we really start getting into him, don't we? Yeah, so um, he's, he led a, a hacker group called the International Subversives, and so they had a, an online magazine called International Subversive. There was only three members. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but they were international, were they? Yeah. <laughs> no, Melbourne. They're all from Melbourne. Yeah, all intersuburbal. That's right. <laughs> so international. He's a street behind me. <laughs> But those streets were different country names. Yeah. But reading through that that magazine, which you can still get online, it's been archived somewhere. It's it's really interesting because you can see they had a more of a political bent. You know, they were going to they're clever. They had control. Well, they claim to have had control of um, international telephone networks, mm. certain companies, mm. which is extraordinary when you think about it. Wasn't it just Telstra at that point? No, was it Telstra or Telecom? No, it would have been Telecom. It was oh, Telecom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. The, but there was was it BT or there was one of the well, big there ones? There was a Canadian company called Nortel. That's it, Nortel. Big, yeah, oh, big right. international company that had networks worldwide, and so they got into Nortel. And it wasn't all sort of hacking and clever codes either. It was ringing up, pretending to be the computer security guy and saying, oh, hi, you know, my name's John. I'm from Sydney Computer. There's been a problem. Can I just uh, get your username and password and I'll check your systems are okay? And oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I really want to help you out. Oh, yeah, that, that was before we were told not to give anything away. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Hello, I'm calling you from Sydney. I'm talking to you about your Microsoft. I don't use Microsoft. You need to log into your Microsoft. No, I don't. But that were, I mean, some of the most successful hacks were just searching for username and passwords that were the same or using passwords, just three-letter words from the dictionary. So, yeah. I mean, it's another era, isn't it, really? Yeah, and, well, I mean, what we're seeing now is especially, like, I mean, if anyone has an Apple iPhone, the security system on that, it tells me all the time that, you know, my, my password's been hacked and I need to go in and change the passwords for this, this, and this. It's it's very interesting now kind of where we're sitting and I guess the level of sophistication that hackers would need to be at would be infinitely higher. Yeah, but they've got much better computers yeah. to do it. I mean, your Commodore 64 <laughs> yeah. compared to your iPhone is like a match compared like, to a new. Like, I thought I was a hacker when I had to, like, remember when you had to boot the Commodore 64? I felt like I was a hacker just doing that. You had to go run, dash, dot. Remember you had to, like, do all those directions just, just, just to play a you didn't game? didn't just touch the symbol on the screen. No, you had to, like, type in things yeah. just to play a game. Back in the day when I worked for the firm, as a joke, I logged into my boss's account. We all had accounts. Uh, so we could get into databases, send messages to each other. Also, the ecology was utterly sealed. It had no connection to the outside world whatsoever. And you could not plug anything into your computer. You couldn't put a disk in it. Good old floppy disks. We had oh, those. Floppy you couldn't disks. do any of that. If you needed to load a piece of software or an app onto your yep. computer, they had to bring a second computer in take the back off your computer, wire it into the motherboard and load it. Right? It was really, really secure. But my boss had gone out. I knew he was a Collingwood fan and Collingwood were doing quite well. So I just put car in the pies and whatever the year was. 
boom, I'm in his account. So I just, I started sending messages to people, really stu- nothing, nothing obscene, nothing rude, just something stupid. Yeah. And then my boss got absolutely like ripped up by internal security oh, yeah. and went, I don't know what's going on until finally it was like, why are you in so much trouble? He said, somebody's hacked my account and yeah, I, they're really worried that someone's got into the system. And I went, oh, mate, that was me as a joke. And the great thing was I thought I'm in real trouble here. But the organisation, the internal security went, right, you're going to be in here every month. We're going to give you a name. You're going to try and get into their account. And the only thing was they weren't interested in what was in the account. They just wanted to know that that password was secure. Because it, sometimes you need a simpleton to crack simple things. Boom. That's it. <laughs> if this idiot can get in, yeah, anyone, anyone can, can get, get in. in. Probably one important point to make. So we do follow Assange through that period. But then later when he got through the cypherpunks and then on to being at Melbourne Uni for a while, then on to making WikiLeaks, mm. he'd left hacking. And I think it's an important distinction because he didn't have to hack anymore. He actually set up. In retrospect, again, it's quite a simple idea. It's a digital dead Dropbox. Yeah. And so he just people just turn up and give him information on a platter. He mm. doesn't have to hack. So, And um, that's one of the contentious things with his current case is that the US government was saying he hacked and he's saying, well, I didn't have to hack. I didn't hack. And I, we've seen no evidence that he needed to hack. The one person who did give evidence about him hacking has since rescinded that evidence. So there's nothing really to suggest that the ideology and the, the idea of access to information and sharing it's still there, but he didn't have to physically go and get it himself. So he really was, the the, the charge that really will t- would stick in this situation is the publication of classified information. He published the cables. They were diplomatic cables. They were confidential all the way up to top secret, whatever that is. But you know, whatever their classification was, he's published it. That's the crime that he's really committed. But they're trying to get him on the hacking charge as well, because that means it's penetration of classified databases and in doing that they can get him for more right i look the whole thing with it wikileaks and particularly with julian assange is this has just been so badly handled it's that they could have done it so much better it could have been so much easier to get this thing fixed up and actually wind up turning out to be probably an asset rather than a liability and i think that's the real problem with yeah and i I think what we've seen with Chelsea Manning, I mean, it could have all been over relatively quickly. I mean, she went to jail and got a pardon and was in and out. I I mean, it wasn't great for her. But, she, you know, she even said it herself. She was like, all this time, Julian Assange could have been in and out. Could have been done by now. You know what I mean? He kind of of did a self-imposed lockdown. We, we don't know. Like some people criticise him for going to the embassy and being paranoid, mm. but then there's other things that he's uncovered that would give him probably a right to feel paranoid. Yeah. So it's really hard to know where that paranoia and where just, you know, reacting to what's around you and what he knows. Exactly. I mean, the the whole idea that there's a theory that the CIA were going to assassinate him, which is like, guys, if you really want to make this guy like even more of a problem, do that. Do right? that. There's nothing worse because I can guarantee you if somebody went and assassinated Julius Assange, I'm pretty sure you would have hackers go, all right, we're going to assassinate your computer. We're going to basically shut your system down. It's not a smart move. And that's what I find fascinating about this is, you know, there, there was this resource from the 90s that was developing this ability to get into other computer systems, which is a really, really incredible skill. And, yep, yeah, all right, 
we didn't know what to do with it. Uh, law enforcement, intelligence, we weren't sure. that. We didn't even know what was going on to start with. But I think the intelligence services have certainly turned around and gone, hang on, this is, a, this is something we can use rather than it's a crime. And, yeah, there are people that are doing it for criminal intent, for nefarious purposes. But for God's sake, if you've got white hats, get them horses and get them guns and get them out there <laughs> shooting the black hats. That's the that's point. That's right. <laughs> the other thing about Motherlode I think that's, that's what we've really tried to do is we're not pro- we're not pro-hacker or anti-hacker. We're not yeah. pro-Assange, anti-Assange, pro-Wikileaks. We're actually talking about what happened. And in retrospect, you can you have the luxury of doing this. You can look and go, how did something like Wikileaks, which has been so disruptive and quite yeah. extraordinary, mm. it, how did it, it didn't just make itself in a day. It didn't come out of the blue. It was 20 years in the making, really. And mm. this is what, yeah. I guess, our story is. It's interesting, David, you talk about they published it and they come up with this problem called the New York Times problem. Yes. Because the New York Times published it as well. Of course. So, Guardian, Washington Post, anything, ABC, Channel 9, whatever. We've all seen, you know, bits of collateral murder video on mm. our news screens. Yep. So if Julian Assange didn't hack it, just published it, what's the difference? So that's a it's a live debate. Well, and I guess isn't that what he kind of said, that he was a publisher, not a- Yes, that's right. That's kind of what he's hiding <clears throat> behind. That's the defence he's yeah. using. Yeah. We don't call it but hiding he- behind, we call it a defence. <laughs> it's a defence. <laughs> <laughs> hiding behind. I, it's, a, it's, the same as, it's the same as Spotify. Am I a media platform? No, I'm not. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. We're an entertainment industry yeah, channel. What is it? Uh, Fox News. No, no, no. We're just no, entertainment. No, no. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but what he did that was different, I guess, was he provided, you know, camouflage to a leaker. So, yes. Right. So, yeah. Um, and that's the thing about the cypherpunks. Their big thing was encryption as as a way to give you privacy and safety on the internet. I mean, that, you know, they talked about the internet being this massive surveillance tool, which which it is. Governments and corporations yeah. can look into our lives more than ever before. But at the same time, we can stand up to governments yeah, and corporations in the same time. So it's it's an interesting battle going on there. But cypherpunks didn't think, oh, the internet's just too much surveillance. That's just go live on a river somewhere, they said, well, let's fight it. And then they had uh, encryption. So encryption was their unifying factor, if you like, and they mm. military-grade encryption. Indeed, mm. the government said you can't export that grade of encryption, and so they printed it in a book and sent it overseas. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, snail mail foils us again. <laughs> it's exactly right. And they did that as a – it's called the crypto wars. We talk about that. It's fascinating. So there was this thing about encryption and decryption as being politicised. Damn, I just can't wait for the rest of this series. I know. So Look, good. I, unfortunately, we have to end it there, but it was, it was an incredible chat. So, Motherload, you can get it anywhere you get your good pod- podcasts. Yep, yep. I got anywhere. it on Spotify. Spotify. Yeah, but you get Spotify. I reckon you get it at Apple. You get Apple, it anywhere. Get it anywhere. Get it anywhere. Thank you so much for joining us. This was so fascinating, and I, I highly recommend that our listeners tune in because I know it's kind of right up their alley. Yeah, it's fantastic. Thanks very much for the chat, Greg. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, David. 